Well, please have your Bible open at Philippians in chapter 2. I hadn't realised what the story was that Graham would uh, tell the children this morning, but uh, as you'll see very soon, uh, one of those little coincidences that God likes to arrange from time to time. Philippians chapter 2, the first 11 verses. Let this mind be in you. One of the great exhortations from the Apostle Paul. There are all kinds of dangers which threaten Christian churches. And last week I mentioned the fact that it is actually those dangers which lurk within a church which are the greatest dangers. There are all kinds of things that oppose us from the outside. And we considered last week how we are to conduct ourselves when that happens. But as I said, if you speak to any Christian and they've lived through any kind of turmoil or division or perhaps even known a split within a church fellowship and you ask them about the causes of that problem, they will always tell you, well, 99 times out of 100, they will tell you it was a problem within the church that caused that issue. Disunity and disagreement from within the church is the greatest threat that all churches face. And the Apostle Paul knows this only too well. And having given that teaching at the end of chapter 1 for the church in Philippi as to how they are to behave when opposition comes from outside, he now addresses those issues regarding Christian unity within local churches. And so this is something which we should all immediately want to sit up and take note of. How do we as a local church guard against those things which could come in and cause amongst us all manner of disunity and lack of harmony and a disagreement to the shame of the cause of Christ. Well, let's mark the words of Paul very carefully as he writes to the Philippian church because in 2,000 years nothing has changed. Uh, the, the problems that faced churches 2,000 years ago are the same problems today. The answers for those churches are the answers for us. Well, the first thing that Paul does, aware that even in the Philippian church, uh, which has done so well for this last 10 years or so, um, there are issues perhaps that threaten the life of that church. And so the first thing that he reminds them all to do in the opening two verses of Philippians 2 is to go back to basics. Go back to basics. Therefore, if there is any consolation or comfort in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Those words remind me very much of what we read 
in Acts chapter 2 of those very first Christian believers in the Jerusalem church, of the way in which they were of one accord and of one mind together. Christians can make the mistake of thinking that what is necessary in churches is a continual moving on to greater and greater things which as yet you have not known or experienced. Now we do need, of course, to grow in our faith. We need to mature in the faith. But in verse 1, Paul doesn't tell them there are things that they need to move on to that they've never known or experienced before. He tells them, you need to go back to the basics. You see, more than anything else, we need to grow and mature in the basic things. Professional sportsmen and women have coaches who they keep taking them back to the basics. Professional golfers will go to a new coach and say, teach me how to swing a club. Teach me how to hold it. Take me back to the basics again. Every six months, commercial pilots have to go through an assessment, which they have perhaps done dozens of times. They don't do anything new. Can you still do what you did when you first learnt to fly and when you first got your licence? That's what I want to know about any pilot when I step on the plane. (laughs) Can they still do it? That which they first learned, are they still capable? What are the basics for us? Well, let's ask a few questions. Is the fact, if you are a Christian, is the fact that you are in Christ a comfort to you? Is the fact that you are in Christ an encouragement to you? And what difference does that make? The fact that you've been united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection, that his atoning work at Calvary and his being raised again in the power of an endless life, that those things now are yours as well in him. How the Father now sees you in his Son. What does that mean to you? What difference does that make? I hope it does. Surely it makes a difference. Is Christ's love for you a comfort and an encouragement to you? That he was prepared to die for you, even the death of the cross. And that he continues with you day by day. What of those things now? Sure, they meant so much to you on the day of your conversion. What was it, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, two months ago? Does it not still mean so much to you today? And are not these basic things that which we all share in common. Are these not the things that bind us together? Aren't these not the things that have brought us to be in a local church in the first place? 
that you have come to know the comfort and love of Christ and that you have been bound to him in union with him. Has not Christ and his spirit visited each one of you in the same way and produced in you and is producing in you the same fruit? Yes, says the Christian. Is there not a sense of affection and mercy in the Christian which those outside of the church find hard to match? Yes, surely. Forgiveness, tenderness, kindness abounding within the fellowship of God's people. Now, says Paul, they are the things which are to be prominent and dominant in the life of a church. They are the things which are to be kept prominent and dominant in the life of a church. You don't move on from those things. You continue in them. That which you have in common on account of your being in Christ, on account of your being in his love, on account of the fact that each one of you is indwelt by God's spirit. These are the things that you are to make the most of. That is what is to be the main thing in your relationships together. Going back to basics. And look at verse 2. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded with the same love and of one accord, one mind. He says it twice about our minds. Being like-minded of one mind. Well, how do we do that? Well, we do that by focusing on those things which he mentions in verse 1. Remembering that for each of us, it's Christ that we have in common. It's the work that Christ has done for us at Calvary and in his resurrection. It's the work that Christ has done in each of us by his spirit in bringing us to new life and to faith. Focus upon those things which bind you and are the bond amongst you. Most of you know, I used to work in a bank we had one day what was a fairly terrifying ordeal, if I'm honest, when a group of men armed with shotguns came into our branch one day. It was the one on Allerton Road. Some of you will have been there. It's quite a sobering experience when a man shouts instructions at you, pointing a gun in your face. A few days later, all the staff who'd been involved attended a debriefing meeting with senior managers. And I remember distinctly the amazing sense of oneness that we all shared in that meeting, simply because of that common experience that we'd been through. Well, that was nearly 20 years ago. And today, when from time to time I go back into that branch and see one or two 
members of staff who I used to be with and who were there with me on that day. Uh, we're all looking a little bit older and uh, a bit saggier around the middle than we were back then. But some of them are still there. But that event of 20 years ago, it's, it's just a distant memory. We don't talk about it. It's never mentioned. Most of the staff who were there weren't there then. And, well, that sense of oneness that we had back then, to be honest, it's largely gone. You see, Paul is reminding the Christian church in Philippi, and he reminds us today, we have this bond which is unique and powerful and special because it never leaves us. It never goes away. It never fades from the memory because it's all to do with Christ. And these really basic things that Paul reminds the Philippian believers of, he's saying, look, this is the basic glue which holds you all together. That you are all in Christ. That you've come to know what it is to be in Christ. You've known his comfort and his love, each one of you. And this is the glue that holds you together in Christian fellowship. And if you permit other kinds of things to become more important than that, the result will always be the same. The glue will become weaker. It's those basic things of the faith which bind a church together. Never think that you can move on to other things that will bind us in the same way. They won't. So first of all, he reminds local churches uh, that what they are to do is to keep going back to the basics and never, never move away from them. And the second thing he reminds them of from verses 3 to 4 is not for yourself, for others. Not for yourself, for others. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. This is how a church keeps itself from disunity and division. Now these verses are a real test of spiritual character, aren't they? Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Nothing. So it's the kind of language that says, well, what I think is, what I prefer is, what I would like is. Whenever you see a young child throwing a tantrum because they're not getting what they want, well, sadly, that's precisely what causes disunity in churches. Because someone has thrown a tantrum because they haven't got what they wanted. Sadly, too often, that is the cause of disunity in churches. It's not happening to my liking. The elders aren't taking the hint. 
The church is not moving in the direction I want it to move. Me, me, me. That's why it's so important who you appoint to eldership. That's why it's so important that you are faithful in prayer for those who are elders. Because as elders, we must not ever be acting through selfish ambition. Never. I know of churches where the problem was caused not by by an elder, but by an elder's wife. Because she used her husband to get her own way in the church. Selfish ambition. Be careful. Conceit. Conceit. Conceit is when you judge others in the church with a critical eye and determine that they are beneath you and that you are above them. Conceit is to consider yourself to be above others. It's actually to think that they have more faults than you and that their faults are greater than yours. It's to treat people with disdain or with contempt. Do you find yourself ever looking at another believer in the church and shaking your head and thinking, oh dear me. Aren't I glad, like the Pharisee, that I'm not like them? Has that never, ever happened? Let's pray that it doesn't. Pray for one another. That the Lord will keep us from that. Are there believers in this church and you'll rarely be seen talking to them but you can often be heard talking about them and it's not to pay them a compliment. That's conceit, says Paul. Be careful. Be careful. There's a Christian characteristic which was absolutely abhorrent to Greeks and Romans. In fact, the Greeks didn't really have a proper word for it because it wasn't really something they ever spoke about. Humility. See, if you were a Greek or a Roman, what you were about was greatness, reputation, fame, acknowledgement, Public acclaim, these things were everything. That's what counted in Greek and Roman culture. You make a name for yourself. Be humble. They'd have laughed in your face. Humble. Lowliness of mind, that's for the weak Not in the kingdom of God it isn't. In the kingdom of God, lowliness of mind is a sign of real strength. Strength of character. Evidence of lowliness of mind is that you esteem others better than yourself. Not just the ones you think probably are better than you. Everyone. 
you esteem them. You behave towards them as if they are better than you. You speak about them as if they are better than you. Stuart Olliot put it like this. Unselfish yourself. He said, instead of being selfish, we should be otherish. Otherish. Unselfish yourself. To be humble is to think little of me and to think much of you. I think little of what I might like in the church. I think little of what I might prefer in the church. I'm prepared to make much of what I know you would like. I'm prepared to make much of what I know you would prefer. I'm prepared to make much of what I know you would need. I'm ready to think much of you and make much of you. And whenever I'm attending my own interests, because each of us, we all have duties and responsibilities that we cannot abandon. We all have interests which are genuine. We all have interests that we must attend to. Um, if, if you're uh, a parent, uh, you have interests for your children that you cannot ignore. So we do have interests which are legitimate. When I'm attending to my own interests, I'm always looking out for yours as well. I never forget about your interests while I'm attending my own. Perhaps as I'm looking to my own interests, I can, I can actually do something for you at the same time. I'm very thankful to God that in this church, I see frequent examples of these qualities that Paul is talking about. But we must keep on. We must keep on bringing ourselves back to these basics and making sure that we never lose sight of them, making sure that we never move away from them. I want you to think about something. At the start of this year, when our brother Chris passed away, one of the chief ways in which that event brought about spiritual good in this church was because as a fellowship, it brought us back to these basic things. Think about it. We made much of Christ because it's in Christ that we have our hope that Chris is with the Lord. We made much of Christ because we knew that of all the things that Carol needed, she needed Christ. It brought us back to these basic, basic things. That's why it did us good spiritually as a church. And even in the midst of such heartache, God was gracious and kind. It did us good. Has it not been the same as Cyprian has been going through his illness and treatment? These things bring us back to these basics. 
And this is the like-mindedness that we are to maintain. This is the like-mindedness that we are to continue in. And we're to keep it up as we keep looking to Christ. This is what keeps churches from disunity and from disagreement. And then thirdly, we're to do everything considering Christ. Consider Christ in all of these things. Now let's read a few more verses from that section. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. As you read that passage, you see that Jesus is coming down, down, down. Down from heaven to this earth. Down from the earth, even to the form of a servant, the lowest form of servanthood. Down even further to the shame and humility of the cross. Down, down, down came the Lord of glory. Let that mind be in you, says Paul. Now Jesus was fully God in every sense and aspect from all eternity past. And in being equal with God, he wasn't taking or claiming something which was not his to take or claim. He was fully God, fully the eternal, almighty God. But he made himself. That's a really important phrase. He made himself. Be of the same mind. Make yourself as Paul has just described in the church let this mind be in you the Lord Jesus Christ added to his nature something that he'd never been before and it required himself to make himself of no reputation he would actually become the laughing stock to many now you and I, when we were born, we came into existence at that very moment of our conception and then were born. And before then, we hadn't existed at all. God knew all about us, of course, but we weren't in existence. But Jesus was not like that, was he? Jesus was something else before he was born. That's the only person who has ever lived for whom that is true that he was something else before he was born. He was the eternal God. And he undertook the ultimate act of humility and the supreme example of lowliness in mind. The infinite and mighty God 
voluntarily confined and restricted himself to a human body. And he had a human soul and nature. He had the nature of a finite man, whilst he continued to be as much God as he'd ever been. He chose not to come as a mighty king in the eyes of the world. He chose not to come as a mighty warrior in the eyes of the world. He didn't go straight to the palace and usurp King Herod and kick him off the throne. He came as a servant. In his adult life, he wouldn't even have a home to call his own. He permitted men. He permitted men to take him. He allowed men to crucify him. And he felt every ounce of physical pain that any man would feel. And it was even the death of the cross. Crucifixion was so horrendous. And crucifixion was considered so shameful that the Romans had a law which prevented Roman citizens from being crucified as a form of execution. They would usually have their heads lopped off because it was quick, it was merciful, it was relatively painless. Not crucifixion, not for a Roman. A Roman must never know that kind of humility. You see, Christ's humility was far greater than you or I will ever know or understand. And his lowliness of mind was far more than you or I will ever attain. And yet here you are, perhaps, always wanting to get your own way. Here you are, perhaps, with your own personal agenda that's niggling away at the back of your mind all the time. Here's you, perhaps, with all your own likes and preferences, determined to be unhappy until you get your way, perhaps. And Paul says, look to Christ. Let this mind be in you. Keep thinking about him. Think of what he has done for you. And it won't be so hard to do what Paul is urging upon you. Look at Christ. Think upon Christ. Let this mind be in you. Now perhaps some struggle with lowliness of mind, some struggle in esteeming others better than yourself because too easily you forget what Christ did for you while you were still a sinner and a rebel. Maybe you struggle with lowliness of mind. Maybe you, maybe you struggle in esteeming people better than yourself because you too quickly take your gaze off Christ. Perhaps you struggle with lowliness of mind and perhaps you struggle in esteeming others better than yourself because you forget that if Christ had not done that for you, you would still be lost and dead in your trespasses and sins if he had not gone to the cross. 
Maybe you struggle with lowliness of mind. Maybe you struggle in esteeming others better than yourself simply because, well, frankly, you're stubborn. You will not let this mind be in you. If any of these things are the case, and I suspect actually none of us have got a clean bill of health in this area, if any of this is the case, it's it's time to repent and to look again to Christ. And look at where Christ is now. And look at where he will be in the future. Verses 9 to 11. Therefore God also has highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue confess, verse 11. Well, God willing, next Sunday morning we'll spend a bit more time delving into those verses a little bit more. And perhaps you're wondering, how can we read that passage and not have sung the hymn at the name of Jesus? Well, we'll sing it next Sunday morning, if God spares us, as we look at those verses once again. I want to point out one word. Therefore. Did you spot it? Therefore, God also has highly exalted him. Why is the word therefore there Paul is pointing out that Christ's exaltation has come after his humiliation Paul teaches that what is said about Jesus in verses 9 to 11 is a direct result of what has been said in verses 5 to 8 what is said in verses 9 to 11 can only be said because of what is mentioned in verses 5 to 8. Most people who read this passage completely ignore the word therefore and completely miss its significance. Why will Christ be exalted? Because he was first humiliated. Why will Christ be exalted? Because he made himself of no reputation. Why will Christ be exalted? Because of his humble obedience. Therefore. Why will Christ be exalted? The answer is simple. Because in God's kingdom, up is down and down is up doesn't work that way in the world in the world down is down and everyone looks down on you in the world up is up in the hope that everyone will look up to you doesn't work that way in the kingdom of God in God's kingdom the humble are exalted in God's kingdom those who seek to exalt themselves will be humbled In the little parable told by Jesus that we had the children reminded of this morning, it was the tax collector who humbled himself, who became exalted in the eyes of God. And it was the Pharisee who prayed with his proud boasts, who God didn't even listen to. See, in the kingdom of God, up 
is down and down is up. In God's kingdom, the first will be last and those who put themselves last will be first. In God's kingdom, God's smile rests upon those who imitate his son. Let this mind be in you.